and MedTech interviews with Encode Ideas. My name is Hogan Mullally. I'm a partner at Encode. Today, I'm going to be speaking with another portfolio manager, another friend of Encode Ideas, Jeb Besser, managing member at the hedge fund Manchester Management. Jeb is not only a portfolio manager, he's also recently become the CEO of a NASDAQ company called Modular Medical. Now, Modular just completed its IPO to go to NASDAQ, and Manchester is the largest shareholder. And subsequent to the IPO, Jeb has stepped in as CEO of Modular. So we're gonna be discussing Modular Medical with Jeb today. As well, we're gonna be talking with him about a legacy investment that Manchester's had over the years called Fennec Pharmaceuticals. And time permitting, we're going to discuss uh, one more company that's likely completely off the radar for most, a little Alzheimer's disease company that Manchester recently led a financing in called Alpha Cognition. From a disclosure perspective, I would highlight that Encode Ideas did write research on modular medical in 2021 and we were compensated. One or both of the partners at Encode Ideas also owns equity in modular medical. Fennec Pharmaceuticals, we've had a long-standing consulting agreement with Fennec Pharmaceuticals, and one or both of the partners at Encode owns equity in Fennec. And finally, with regards to Alpha Cognition, there is no financial arrangement between Encode Ideas and Alpha Cognition, but one or both of the partners of Encode do own equity in Alpha Cognition. I would lastly highlight that this podcast does not contain financial advice. It is for entertainment purposes only. Please do not consider comments made in the podcast as an offer or inducement to buy or sell any securities. And now I'll transition to my interview with Jeb Besser. Okay, I'd like to welcome Jeb Besser of Manchester Management to the podcast. Jeb, introduce yourself and Manchester. Okay. I'm Jeb Besser. I'm uh, one of the two managing members at Manchester Management. We're a $100 million hedge fund that's been in the investment business for 25 years now. And I've been a investment professional on the buy side for 25 years. And probably the last 15 plus focused on life science investments and in the public market. And you know, as a fund, we run hyper-concentrated, so five positions or less represent more than 80% of our assets. And uh, you know we like special situations and great value where we can see a significant return based on catalysts in a moderate amount of time. Great. And let's talk about one of those concentrated investments. You've recently stepped into the CEO role of of Modular Medical. Um, And, you know, maybe before we dive into the, you know, your current plans for Modular, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the history of the company, when you first encountered it, and what caught your eye initially when you you first saw Modular Medical. Sure. Um, So we were doing due diligence on another name in the, on another technology in the wearable diabetes space. And we, um, as part of the due diligence, we met Paul DePerna, who had founded 
tandem diabetes, TNDM, you know, one of the big three of uh, insulin delivery devices in the United States. And so he had found, he had founded Tandem. He'd been the first CEO. He had gotten the, the original T-Slim approved. The guts of what is now Tandem was invented by Paul as employee number one. And he was a due diligence resource on this other company that we were looking at. The other company flamed out in due diligence, but Paul told us about a new type of insulin pump that he was developing that was about you know, a half-finished bench prototype at the time and that he had spent a few million of his own money on. And we said, wow, that sounds interesting. But we only do public company investments. And we said, we have to find a way to get involved here. And so we bought a shell, Bear Lake Recreation. And in 2017, we merged Paul's little insulin pump startup into it and made an initial investment. And we've been heavily involved ever since. Paul and Manchester helped develop the commercial strategy for Mod, and uh, you know, and we remain its largest shareholder. And Paul's the second largest shareholder. So, uh, so we have we have quite a history. And Paul developed the pump primarily because after he developed tand- the tandem pump and he started interviewing, interviewing users, he realized that. While he might have addressed the technologically savvy, most sophisticated, most motivated part of the market, he developed a product that left many diabetics behind. And that's what the modular pump, our first product, Mod 1, is designed to address. It's really diabetes treatment for for the rest of us, for those who aren't as technically sophisticated or for those who don't want to spend as much time managing a device that they wear. Right. And I think that segues nicely maybe into my next question, which is, you know, I've known modular now for for a few years and, you know, you guys often reference the evolution of the continuous glucose monitor market as something that uh, should naturally happen with the insulin pump market and specifically how Abbott's uh, Freestyle Libre really revolutionized that that segment. Can you sort of connect the dots here on drawing the parallels between the CGM market and the insulin pump market and how you think maybe modulars mod one can, you know, be the equivalent of Abbott's product in this, you know, for what Abbott's product did in the CGM market? Absolutely. So there are 3.6 million Americans who inject insulin daily to manage their diabetes and 3 million of them still in still use needles to inject and 670,000 of them are on a pump. And yet there's this adjacent space. The continuous glucose monitor space is also a product that you wear all the time. And it's a product that improves your outcomes with diabetes. But the penetration of CGMs is three times as great as the pump penetration. And so when we first looked at the space, we said, why is this? Well, the reason we think that is, is because Abbott Libre redefined the market. When Abbott Libre was introduced in 2016, Dexcom was already the market share leader. They've been on the market for, I think, greater than seven years. Uh, and the key opinion leaders, when asked about the Abbott Libre, said, why would anyone want this? It's less accurate than Dexcom. All it does is tell you your blood sugar level when you wave a wand over the little disc on your arm. It doesn't have the alarms that Dexcom has. It doesn't have, it's not as accurate. It doesn't have alarms. It doesn't have the patient portals to your 
family can track you in real time and your doctor if they want. And it's, yes, it's cheaper, but it's less accurate. So why, why is that really of interest? Well, it turns out that a lot of people were interested. From a dead stop in 2016, in five years, Abbott Libre is bigger than De- become became bigger than Dexcom and has more users. But Dexcom kept growing. And that's a key point. Basically, the Libre proved that there's this other more casual group of people who would like to adopt a device if it was easy to use and involve less complexity and less cost. And there's another group of people who like these sophisticated high-end treatment modalities that the current pumps offer. So we think that the pump market is just like the CGM market, except that Libre hasn't been introduced yet. And we think that we have an opportunity to be that product. In fact, growth in the pump space is so anemic, the number of people on pump now is the same as a percentage of diabetics is the same now as it was, at least in the type one space, 15 years ago. There's been a little bit of growth in type two, but the pump market hasn't grown much at all. You might look at tandem and insulates growth numbers and say, well, that's not possible. But all that's happened is that they've taken Medtronic's market share in the space from 100% to 50%. It's been mainly a market share shift, not a real growth in the market. And the current pumps and their adopters are mainly the best treated diabetics that there are. And so they did a good job before with multiple daily injections. They're getting an even better result now with uh, with these pumps, but the number of ty- of diabetics who are meeting their ADA guidelines also hasn't changed in 15 years. So we've taken the top 20% and given them better care, much better care, but we haven't helped the middle. And that's what the mod one is supposed to do. It's designed from the ground up to treat that middle population that liked the Libre and is now going back to their doctor and says, I can see my numbers are out of control now. What can I do about it without doing a lot more work? So maybe just to build on that, though, you know, the the attributes of mod one are to be simpler, obviously, than the incumbents. But what about a, from a pricing perspective? Is it intended to be more affordable? Is that is that the Libre model as well is to come in as a as a more af- affordable alternative to the to the existing products? Absolutely. Affordability is important to ask you to pay a lot more to use a product that might give you a better result in 20 years, but costs you, you know, in the case of Tandem or Medtronic, often $1,000 out of pocket right at the beginning, also discourages people from adopting it. The Libre was 40% cheaper than Dexcom. Um, We did a survey of a third of the commercial lives in the US and asked them if there was a less full-featured pump like ours that had an equivalent label to the Omnipod, what kind of a rebate would we have to pay in order to get equal or preferred coverage to Omnipod the day we launched. And the results of that survey were that we that a 20% rebate would get us in that position. So we think that we'll be covered by insurance in the beginning and that insurance companies will save $1,000 per patient year versus an Omnipod by using our product. And the reason we can do that is because our product was not only designed from the ground up to be simpler, and meet the objections of the almost pumpers as to why they've been looking at the same three pumps for the, the last 10 years and haven't adopted. But also, when we designed it, Paul instructed his design team, don't use any part, you can't use any part that isn't found in consumer electronics. 
So what that means is that we benefit from the scale of the greatest, most optimized supply chain for electronics in human history. So while the other guys might have scale in terms of custom custom medical device electronics, we have scale as a consumer electronics derivative, which enables us to have a 50% plus cost of goods advantage at launch versus the other leading pumps. But we've also innovated in terms of the design. We listened to the almost pumpers and what they wanted. They said, we don't want an external controller like Omnipod has. We don't want we don't want to have to charge it or change the battery. So our battery comes in the disposable that you change every three days. We want to be able to take it off. So we don't want to be tethered and feel like we're chained to our diabetes. So our device is removable while the Omnipod is not. And we have a three milliliter reservoir and the Omnipod only has two. So while Tandem and Medtronic have a three milliliter reservoir, they're much larger pager sized devices you wear on your belt with 48 inches of tubing coming out of them. We think that a lot of people like the Omnipod form factor, but 24% of type ones and 64% of type twos can't get through three days with only two milliliters of insulin. They just are too insulin resistant. So we think that there's a, that those are ready-made users for us as well. And just to be clear, our go-to-market strategy is not to try and convert existing pump users. We think that a lot of pump users are have learned the interface and are getting better care and are happy with it. We want to convert these other users who have been left behind. And when we surveyed 10% of all the endocrinologists in the United States, they said, and we asked them, how many of your patients do you think would go on a pump that was simpler, cheaper, and less full-featured and answered some of these objections? They said 25% of them. So that equates to a $3 billion opportunity. And when we surveyed the patients, thousands of patients, 45% of them approximately said, I would go on a pump if it was easy for me to use and it was easy to get coverage on. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's perfect. So so where are you though in the development of of Mod 1? Well, we have design lock on on Mod 1. Um, We are going to submit late in Q2. And... The regulatory process here is a little is a little different than most products that you're probably familiar with in the pharmaceutical and med device space. In that, because using an insulin pump, uh, because if an insulin pump fails and drops all the insulin into the human body, the patient can die or be placed in a coma almost immediately. Uh, the FDA does not allow human trials with these devices. So, no, all three of the current devices were cleared before they had ever been worn by a person. So instead, what the FDA insists on is 27 physical tests. We already had our pre-submission meeting, so we know what those tests are. And so we have to go, so over the next 90 days, we have to go through a series of mechanical stress tests, um, a quick human factor study where we make sure that people understand how to put it on, but don't actually use it. And you know, those are tests like drop it on its side, does it still pump accurately? Throw it up, throw it up in the air, take it to altitude, put it in the shower, you know, drop a marble on it from 10 feet up. Tests that mimic the negative field experiences that other pumps have had over the last 20 years. And then we submit to the FDA and then they ask us questions. We respond to those questions and then it goes into an iterative process where they ask us more questions with a goal of finishing the review and clearing us within six months, assuming we can answer the questions appropriately. So it's a quick process. 
it's a process that can have and and the time between here and submission you know when you think about the potential for delays and risk those delays and risks are measured in weeks not months or years so it's a pretty low hurdle for clarity's sake this is a plain vanilla 510k with a planned submission to FDA in Q2 and all things go well end of 22 we could have a FDA clearance that's right that's okay right. i should also point out though hogan that you know that clearance is a massive value driver for the company because you know i don't want to get too much into the relative value game but there's never been a cleared pump company that didn't have a 330 million dollar or greater value in the us equity market uh insulate had the 330 million dollar value back in 2004 Tandem, it was 480 million when they went public with a recently cleared product. And then there's an unapproved product that's public on the COSDAQ called EOFlow that has a $600 million cap on the COSDAQ. So, and obviously, you know, our peers, Tandem and Insulate have, you know, mm -hmm. 5 billion and 16 billion valuations respectively. So I think, I think at our current, at our current valuation, you know, around $40 million, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of room between us and them in terms of potential for appreciation right so you've mentioned these pump competitors two are absolute or pure play pump players in insulate and tandem and then you've got a med device conglomerate in in medtronic these aren't easy companies to compete against as a small company so assuming successful navigation of the fda 510k process how do you plan to commercialize the product in 2023? What's your sort of go-to-market strategy here? So one of the things that shocked me when I looked at this market the first time was when I learned about how these products are currently prescribed and sold. So right now, if you go to your doctor and say that you want an insulin pump, you, you need to keep a diary for 30 to 60 days of all your diabetic events. That's you know what your blood sugar was in the morning, what you how many carbs you ate for breakfast, and so on and so forth. And then you come back and give that to your doctor, and they say, "Okay, you're eligible for a pump." And they're not doing that because you're a good or a bad candidate for a pump clinically. Everyone will get better results if they're on a pump than using multiple daily injections. They're doing it because it's a proxy for compliance. Because current pumps are hard to use, and the biggest fear of the insurer is that they will pay for a pump, and then you will go on it and then stop using it. The next thing that happens is the doctor says, you're eligible for a pump. Here are the business cards for Tandem, Insulin, and Mentronic. Go home, call these people, and then they will come to your house and give you the feature and benefit sale at your kitchen table. Then you'll decide which one you want, come back, take a one-week training class, fill out the insurance paperwork, and then pick up your pump. This sales process sort of similar to selling an encyclopedia is unlike any other process we've heard of recent in recent times in medical device or pharmaceuticals. And the design of our pump is the modular $34 reusable piece that sits on top that lasts for 90 days, and then a cartridge underneath. So what we plan to do is to eliminate the, I'm going to send you home with a business card. Instead, we plan to leave blister packs at the doctor with samples of our pump and a little downloadable app or QR code so you can watch a video about how to use it. And so instead, the patient will go home with a sample pump 
and they will put it on themselves and say, this is for me, or this isn't for me. This, that was, even that was too much work. And we did a study of 30 multiple daily injectors who have never used a pump before. And we gave them our quick start guide, our device, and said, what would you do with this? Didn't even tell them it was a pump. Eight out of 10 within 10 minutes and no human intervention were able to put it on and say, it's an insulin pump, obviously. So we think we're the easiest to use. We think we can be prescribed just by putting the pumps at the doctor's office and asking them to show them to their users who to date have said, I want a pump, but, and see if we can capture a certain percentage of those almost pumpers. And given our given that we're going to use Insulate's code with a 20% rebate or $4,000 roughly a patient year, that drives, you know, if we get only 36,000 patients out of the 3.6 million who currently inject insulin, that's a $150 million business. If we get 2%, it's a $300 million business and we have a 20% op margin based on our current model. I think that's pretty compelling. And it's, and it's very different than the other guys who are, you know, billion dollar plus run rates and either barely making money or not making money at all. So based on what you're saying there, obviously the commercial infrastructure, the commercial footprint, you know, doesn't need to be anywhere near the same size as the the other players, given the fact that you can sample and the simplicity as opposed to the the uh, incumbents who, you know, need a lot of hands-on training and a lot of infrastructure to sell. Is that sort of the that's, safe to that's, assume? That? That's a fair way to describe it. Yes. We think we think that because our product was designed from the ground up to be sampleable, that we can eliminate a lot of the hassles related to the way the other products sell. And just to be clear, it's not because their products are inaccurate. They're, they are very, very good, well-engineered medical devices. The problem is that they were designed 20 years ago, and the way that they were designed doesn't allow them to be sampled because if you left a tandem or a Medtronic with the patient, one, it's a $4,000 piece of medical equipment that they might not return, and two, if they use it improperly before they have the one-week training class, they could really hurt themselves. So, and even insulate where you're throwing the whole pump away, still need the controller to make it work or a dedicated lockdown right. smartphone. So, so we think, you know, the way we're designed also enables us to have a go-to-market strategy and it might, that's, that's much easier and more economical. And it might even enable us to use a telemedicine strategy to place units too. Okay. Maybe turning now to sort of more um, finance and capital markets, you, you obviously mm-hmm. just completed a $15 million NASDAQ uplist round in an extremely challenging market. I don't, I don't think I need to tell you that. What exactly is that money earmarked for? Is it you know, predominantly going to the, the that, as you talked about, uh, testing that needs to be done, non-human testing and regulatory? What are the use of proceeds here from this, this recent financing? So use of proceeds here is to get us to FDA clearance. Uh, We need to pay for the third-party lab tests. We need to pay for the consultants required to help us format the submission properly so that we have a successful interaction with the FDA and answer their questions properly. And we also need to buy or contract for the manufacturing equipment to do a pilot manufacturing line because that has a long lead time. And we think that the market will want to see proof that we can hit the cost of goods claims that we have made in terms of being able to produce this as cheaply as, as we said. So 
2 million roughly of that goes to initial manufacturing optimization and the uh, the rest of the money is dedicated to the submission and then answering the FDA's questions and then providing as much runway as possible for the FDA to respond. Okay. Uh and and maybe sort of building on that that financing piece that that just was consummated you know you you talked earlier about your your history and how you were really you know at the beginning you know once you found Paul Deperna X Tandem you know you had this sort of eureka moment and have been at you know working with modular really since it's you know its earliest days mm-hmm. why now are you stepping in as CEO um, what, what, what was the impetus here for, for you stepping in as, as CEO at this juncture and what are you hoping to accomplish in, in this role? Mm-hmm. Well, um, modular is unique in that while I like to, because we run, we run so concentrated, I like to get to know my companies very, very well. We were, we've been so intimately involved in the design and study of how to go to market with this product that my ramp up time in terms of learning what's in the data room and how we intend to commercialize is very, very short. So this was a good fit for me and, and, and a great time to have someone who has that background because I understand the commercial strategy. I think that I understand something of what investors want since I've been a buy side investor for my entire career. And Right now, the company has never had a NASDAQ listing before. It existed in this sort of netherworld of being a pink sheet stock that didn't trade until at all until 2021 and then barely. Now we have a NASDAQ listing, we have decent trading volume, and we have enough money, we think, to get to FDA clearance and actually get on the market. And so that's, that's a great story with great upside, and I think it needs to be told. And I have the time and the energy and the understanding to go out and evangelize the story. And I think that that's one of my primary goals as CEO. The rest of the job right now, since we're an R&D project that's still run by Paul in, in Escondido to get us across the goal line, is to keep Paul focused on what we need to do and minimize our expenditure. So stay on budget, stay current with the SEC stay on our timeline and allow Paul to do what he does best with his, you know, 10 devices that he's gotten through the FDA. So he's very experienced with how to do this and not have him be distracted with going out and telling the story a hundred times. I'm perfectly capable of doing that. And as far as how long I'll sit in the CEO chair, I'll also say, you know, the other reason to pick me right now is that there's no danger that I'll fall in love with this and say, this is the only thing I ever want to do. (laughs) <laughs> Obviously, the the goal here is to get the clearance and bring in upon at that point a hyper qualified commercial CEO, or see what the market will bear for our see what the market might pay for our product if there's a strategic fit somewhere else. And at that point, it, if whichever door there we choose. <laughs> um, I won't be sitting in this chair anymore after that. Has there been much M and A in the insulin pump space? Do you see, do you see a rationale for uh, M and A increasing in the insulin pump space? Well, it's been a long time, right? I mean, obviously, Medtronic bought Minimed for two point four billion dollars um, back in the day to essentially own the category. J and J bought an, uh, 
Medtronic lookalike Animus. This is actually, this M&A activity actually got Paul thinking about, gosh, these devices, I think I could build one. Look at the valuations. Um, Medtronic recently bought an Israeli startup for $300 million that has a technology, a different kind of technology. But we think that fundamentally, Medtronic needs to expand its portfolio if it's going to stay in this business because they've gone from 100% market share to 50. Um, There have been other companies that have had very high valuations that just haven't gotten through clearance. So, and, And the other thing I would say is there are other companies who have touched this space before and might have an interest to go in it, but haven't succeeded in developing a product because developing an insulin pump is really, really hard. And then there are the drug guys themselves. You know, Novo and Lilly have each committed to spending hundreds of millions of dollars to make smart pens, auto injectors, and other devices that try to make their flavor of insulin more sticky because they know at some point there'll be a biosimilar insulin on the market that will Mm -hmm. start to attack their pricing in a big way. So we think those are also companies that could look at us and say, wow, here's a way to capture this other group of users and make my product sticky and, and more defensible at the same time. But you know, Terrific. Never, you can't run a company with the idea that you're just going to run it to be acquired. You have to run it because we think our go-to-market strategy is great and is much more capital efficient than the way other companies in this space have commercialized. So that's what we're going to try and achieve. And if, if something happens along the way, so be it. So one last question before we transition to Fennec, and I, I just want a real sort of short, snappy answer here. Where do you see modular one year from now? Cleared. How's that for perfect. snappy? That's perfect. No, that's exactly it. Just want the confidence sort of, yeah, where, where are you going to be? Cleared. That's perfect. Okay. Let's turn to Fennec now. And, and again, I think we should start with Manchester's history. You know, at one point you were... Uh, when they were in our, a pure play sort of R&D store, you were one of the largest shareholders and you've continued to have exposure with the company, you know, since then. Talk about your history with the company, what initially attracted you to it. Yeah, just give us your 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 history with, with Fennec. Well, we've been involved on and off with the company since 2013. So we have a long history. I guess the the 30-second version of it is we saw the company when their lead product was a breast cancer drug. Uh, we thought that there were there was a chance that the FDA wouldn't see eye to eye with them on the protocol for advancing that further. But then when we looked at the last slide of their deck that talked about sodium theosulfide, which is now Pedmark, we said this is a product you could commercialize. It's already in a it's already in a phase three that's going to read out this year. This is 2013. Call us when this is your only product. And after the FDA led them to shelve their breast cancer product. Uh, we led a financing for them in November of 2013. And actually, funnily enough, one of the few conditions of that financing was that the company had to change its name because we didn't like the old name. And my business partner came up with the name Fennec, which is a cute little desert fox with enormous ears because the lead product was supposed to treat hearing loss in children. So, so we have been involved for a long time. And so... That's how we got started, and we've been a shareholder most of the time since then, because we think that the product has a very defined, very exciting market, a very low-risk profile from a safety perspective, a great profile from an efficacy perspective, and we think that they're going to dominate the, once approved, will dominate the pediatric chemo-induced hearing loss segment for a long, long time because of the nature of their product. 
No, that's great. You you summed it up really nicely there, especially at the end with, you know, where it leads me to my next question, which is FDA related, because obviously that's where all investors are sort of gravitating when it comes to Fennec. But, you know, I think right. you you highlight something, which is, you know, the efficacy is, is you know, uh, non-debatable, really. The safety is has been, you know, well-defined, but they've received two CRLs from FDA and it's got nothing to do with efficacy. It's got nothing to do with safety. It's got to do with manufacturing. Yep. So the company is guided that it's going to be resubmitting its NDA here at the end of March. How comfortable are you this time, it's third time, that they can get this NDA approved? I think that, one, you're correct. In our opinion, the CRLs were caused by issues with quality in the manufacturing. And I think you know we have to say that on its face, the drug category that this, this represents is not that hard to manufacture. It's not like we're dealing with some kind of gene therapy that needs to be produced at, you know, 100 degrees below Celsius or something. This is a fairly straightforward product to make. I think the problems have been driven by being in the market at the same time as the vaccines have been ramping up means that there's no finished fill capacity readily available in the U.S., which kind of drives your choice of vendor. Um, there are a few little twists of the product that also limit the choice of manufacturing partner. And I think they were unlucky the first time. And I think they correctly pivoted to, we're going to, we need a second source in case our original manufacturing partner couldn't fix their problems. And I think that's, you know, they couldn't have gotten, they would have been in the exact same position they're in right now if they had gone to the second source and just waited for them to, to get on stability and get ready to file, refile the NDA. So I think they did the right thing in trying to fix, remediate the original problem and cover and hedge their bets. So, and I think the problems with the original manufacturer are pretty widespread and affect a lot of products potentially. And uh, so I do think, I do think that the product fundamentally is manufacturable. It's manufacturable even at a smaller manufacturer. I think their second source is unlikely to be, is very unlikely to be as troubled as their original manufacturer. Does that answer the question? Yeah. So I guess maybe just to clarify. So the first two CRLs due to CMC manufacturing issues were both, you know, related to the same yeah. manufacturer. And yeah, now same, and now same this, manufacturer this, and and general general lack of diligence and preparedness, I would say. And, and honestly, that kind of problem pervades the entire contract manufacturing drug business in the US because you know, the next CEO of, of the company often doesn't come from the manufacturing segment <laughs> in the drug industry. So a lot of these places are located where they're located because um, someone got a good subsidy to build a facility there, not because, and not because it's you know, a great place to find the right kind of labor and not because it's, um, not because the guy who ends up, the man or woman who ends up running the facility is an all-star. So safe to assume though, you're more comfortable knowing that this new NDA submission or, or response to the CRL is, uh, includes a new manufacturer that gives you a lot of comfort in the, let's call it yeah. approvability of Pedmark yes. Yes. third time around here. Yep. Gives me a lot of comfort because ultimately this isn't a problem with the product or the trial. It is a problem with 
a single manufacturer that's troubled that I think has had multiple other drugs fall out because of general quality issues at the whole facility. And that's unlikely to recur at another smaller facility that, that they picked. Okay. So turning now to, to the market that Pedmark uh, stands to address, the, you know, the final phase three pivotal study with with Pedmark was in children with hepatoblastoma. But in my discussions with, you know, a lot of Fennec investors, there seems to be a fairly strong belief that FDA will grant Pedmark a much broader label for all localized non-metastatic tumors in pediatric patients. So assuming FDA approves Pedmark uh, this time around, you know, what do you see the label being? And, you know, do you think it can be successful under either scenario where you've got a more narrow label or a more broad label? I think it can be successful under either scenario because this isn't a very big specialty. Virtually every doctor who would prescribe this was either in the COG or the SIOPL6 study or, or knows someone who was in those studies, was a colleague of someone who was in those studies. So I feel very confident that the doctors are aware of the product, aware of what it does, and aware of its very good safety profile. So I think even if the label was narrow, I think they would use it very aggressively. I think though that the, the agency will very likely pick a broad label because there's so much supporting data to suggest that it works safely in many different tumor types. And standard risk hepatoblastoma was just the pivotal trial choice, key pivotal trial choice because the survival rate is so high that any issues with safety would have showed up very quickly and they did not. Well, even with a broad label, do you think there's even potential for off-label use in other areas, whether it be you know certain metastatic situations or even in adults? Um, some of the doctors I've talked to say they wouldn't hesitate to use it in metastatic applications. As far as adults, you know, I think the problem... The reason that this isn't getting approved for adults is the difficulty in running an adult trial and not that there isn't applicate, not that there isn't a mechanistic application in adults. I think if you're a concert pianist who's 30 years old and you're taking and you're taking uh, cisplatin, you would you should definitely consider this. But obviously I don't work for the company, so you know, you don't <laughs> off-label is always an interesting area. But I do think that there's a little bit of there's a, the potential for some off-label use. I also think a lot of people minimize the potential opportunity overseas. And, you know, in Europe, the market for, an, you know, the pricing in the market for a drug of this type is actually very similar to the United States. I think the European market is just as big as the U.S. for this indication. Okay, and, interesting. And I, think, and I think that the pricing power that these guys have, given that, you know, the cost over the lifetime of a child for cochlear implants alone is almost $100,000. The argument for a higher price and a great cost benefit here, I mean, in it, and that's, that's cochlear implants and doesn't even count the, you know, you're an average of a grade level and a half behind if, if the chemo takes away your hearing, you're, you can never drive a car and, and all the other associated issues yeah, I think I think there's a very and this small number of patients. I think there's a very strong case for the payers to pay for anyone that the doctors feel medically needs this product, and at a price that's you know greater than a hundred thousand dollars per patient. Do you think Pedmark is a 
the kind of product that Fennec could successfully commercialize itself? And and I guess, you know, that again leads me to the the M and A question. Like, do you think there's there's, you know, above average chance of M and A for Fennec post FDA approval? Um, and what would that equity be worth? You think? So first of all, I think they definitely can commercialize this themselves. This is this is a, you know. 10 to 15 salesperson plus backup medical liaison type application with a few reimbursement specialists. You've got a very small group of people that would prescribe the product. They tend to work in a few highly concentrated academic centers at children's hospitals, and they're all very aware of the product and aware that there is no alternative product and the safety of it. So you don't have to, you don't have to touch them a lot of times to help them start putting the product into use. So I think that it is something that Fennec could take to market themselves and maybe they could take to market themselves in Europe or they could partner it depending on the country. But also I think there is a real opportunity for M&A here because there aren't a lot of late stage orphan products like this with this kind of clinical package. I think people are waiting to see what the label looks like and make sure that they actually get across the goal line. And I think there's a very diverse list of acquirers who could step in here. And, uh, you know, the company hasn't built out the commercial organization yet. So there isn't a lot of redo to be done in order to just bring this in house and run your own commercialization strategy based on your own research. So I do think, I do think there's an opportunity here to see some M&A, but I could also see them commercializing it themselves because it would not be that expensive as a pro- as a project. Um, as far as what I think it could be worth, I think low to mid teens is probably how I would see it if it was if the transaction happened, you know, right around approval. Uh, and then, you know, it could be higher if an acquirer forces them to prove it for a little while and they see traction quickly. Maybe one last question on Fennec. Having spoken to a number of investors over the years, one of the issues that sometimes comes up is the risk of docs compounding STS or using a cyanide kit. Have you spoken to physicians uh, you know, about this? Do you see this as a risk? I don't think this is a real thing. I can't put it any more simply than that. I've talked to many doctors who say the minute that I have an approved product, I would never use a compounded treatment for this. And that's both a belief in higher quality of treatment and efficacy. The fact that you know, this is a one-time expense for the insurance company, so why not bill them given the obvious payback? And the, the liability for the physician, if you compound this and there's an approved treatment that ha- that's efficacious and the patient loses their hearing, you chose not to use this, what's your answer going to be if you're, if you're sued for, mal- for malpractice? Oh, I wanted to try and save some money? Why wouldn't you use the efficacious product, which is almost certainly going to be covered? I just I don't I, think, I, I don't think any doctors perceive this as that as a real thing. Yeah, I, I fall in the exact same camp, but it is something that you know you you hear from investors sometimes. But I completely agree. Once this, you know, once Pedmark's FDA approved, it would be a very risky thing for a physician to do. Yeah, I mean, and also you don't know what the quality of the sodium thiosulfide is in those kits. Treating someone who's had cyanide poisoning in a building fire is a very different proposition than you know treating them in a. Where the the purity and the execution of the product has been passed on by the FDA for this application, 
in an otherwise, you know, in a child who's, you know, got a 90 plus percent likelihood of surviving and dealing with this problem for the rest of their lives. So maybe, maybe just for fun, let's uh, repeat that question uh, that we asked at the end of the modular. Where do you see Fennec? Short and snappy answer. Where do you see Fennec a year from now? No longer public. <laughs> awesome. Okay, great answer. I would have accepted approved as well, just so you know. Um, uh, well, I think I think I think I would say okay, approved and no longer public. Okay, sure. No, sure. But no, I, I you <laughs> yeah, had even shorter. I agree with you. They sort of go hand in hand, but uh, but you asked for a year, not you didn't ask for six to nine months. I got gotcha. you. Right. I got gotcha. you. Okay. We only have a few minutes left, so let's quickly transition to Alpha Cognition, a little Alzheimer's disease company, which uh, the vast majority of our audience will certainly be unfamiliar with. In September, October of 2021, you led a financing uh, for Alpha Cognition. What attracted you to this name? First of all, I like the fact that it's not Adhuelum, <laughs> in that in that it's the application they're going after has long-term proven efficacy. The base compound that they've modified has the best data in this other category that's given as background treatment to virtually all Alzheimer's patients by their caregivers because it reduces the likelihood of death. It delays the onset of, you know, enough dementia that they can't, that they get committed to a home and it leads to better clarity, just generally slows the disease. And even though J&J got the initial molecule approved, it had the horrific side effect of terrible gastric discomfort, vomiting, diarrhea, et cetera. And given that many of these patients are institutionalized and or are cared for at home by an adult relative, that's a huge disincentive to actually prescribing the therapy. And so we saw an opportunity to get involved with Alpha Cognition because they have a potential best-in-class product mechanistically they have great data showing, you know, initial human data showing that they reformulated the product so that it provides the same amount of drug, but gets rid of the gastric side effects. And they have a key readout that could get them cleared coming in mid to late second quarter of this year. And it's a, it's a, it's a 505B2 because they're riding off the safety profile of the, or the efficacy profile of the already existing product. Uh, the J&J commercialized. And we think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit here. These patients don't go off these drugs. They cycle between the drugs to find the one that has the least side effects and the most efficacy for them. And the one that has the least burden for their caregivers. And just to give you an idea of how important an issue that is, the last product that was approved in this space was just simply a combo pill of two of the existing therapies. It offered no ongoing therapeutic benefit beyond what was already out there except for reduction in pill burden on a daily basis. And for that, your copay tripled. The product, with almost no promotion, quickly ramped up to over 200 million in sales. So we think there's a great commercial opportunity here. We think for a small Canadian company, they actually have a very competent US-based team that's got a great background in commercializing drugs on the US market. So. They've got the team already in place to launch it. They've got a pretty quick path to approval. They can do a follow-on study to prove that the gastric side effects don't exist. And they have great long-term data on the compound to show efficacy. 
And honestly, I think they're also an acquisition target with that commercial package upon approval or maybe even shortly before. Right. So I don't know if we were, if it came out in your sort of initial comments there, but so we're basically dealing here with a, a pro drug of FDA approved galantamine. Yes. Correct. Is that, that's correct. the, that's that the active, right. And and so yep. that's why, that's why for the 505 B2 NDA, they are only required to do a BE study to yes. get it, to get it approved because you're, Correct. You're really referencing the the existing uh, NDA from mm -hmm. uh, for galantamine. Yes, yes, and that is true. And galantamine had was the by far the best performing drug in a I think it was a ten year study of a huge number of Alzheimer's patients in Sweden. So BE data is expected from alpha cognition in Q two. Correct. That's correct. Great. Okay. And then, and then from there, they are going to run some additional studies you said to sort of uh, flesh out some of the core safety advantages and dosing advantages. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Because those, okay. those are important marketability studies because you want to be able to demonstrate the biggest issue that caregivers had with the original product, which caused it to be poorly promoted and then not widely used, which was severe gastric distress yes and this one i guess you know uh, you know as you highlight obviously the alzheimer's disease space has gone through all kinds of wild oscillations biogen zatohelm has obviously gone from being um one of the most controversial approvals from fda in a long time to a commercial dud and and you know still a, a bit of a uh, obviously a very controversial name and Alzheimer's disease companies have gone through all kinds of uh, wild oscillations as far as valuations go. I mean, cassava is obviously a, a poster child for all kinds of volatility. This one's a, a little different, obviously, because we're not actually, well, we're not running efficacy studies. Yes, we're not running efficacy studies. These are fairly, we, you know, we've seen, we've seen the bioavailability in smaller studies. We're just carrying it through. We've seen the advantages on the nausea side in smaller studies. We're just carrying it through. But we've seen the long-term benefit of this class of drug in much longer-term, much larger studies. Unlike, unlike Biogen, where the benefit seems to be transient only at the beginning of the disease and causes horrific side effects like uncontrolled brain bleeds. I mean, I, I guess <laughs> this, this product, other than being in Alzheimer's, has very little to do with Adhuelum and it's not aggressively priced or won't be aggressively priced, we think, relative to anything else that's already been paid for and approved in the category. And reimbursement in the category really hasn't been a problem because anything that delays institutionalization for months or even years, the payer is going to pay for because there's an obvious cost save there, a pill versus paying for a home. So honestly, you're not, you're not paying a big valuation for the company right now. It's sort of orphaned as a Canadian company, as a Canadian biotech that's not approved or that's that's right. then targeting the U.S. cognition market. I, I feel like I have to wrap things up by asking this question now, which is, where do you see Alpha Cognition twelve months from now? Uh, you know, that is, snappy. That's that's a more difficult question than the others, but I would say, and and I can't say approved because I think the regulatory timelines won't allow me to say that yet. 
And, you know, I would say valued at a significantly higher level. <laughs> right. So, and, and you're, and I, I guess I was being a little maybe casual on the regulatory timelines, but you're right. I mean, I suppose a year from now, we can't be certain that the NDA will have actually been the Padufa date will have come and gone. Yes. So maybe, maybe in fairness, I should have asked you 18 months. Um, but um, I think, yeah, I, uh, I think, I think the product, I think the dog hunts on the product. I think the evidence that it works is compelling. And I think that, uh, you know, it's the right formulation and then it's oral and not nasal like the prior management was pursuing. Uh, I think it's, I think there's, you know, a lot of data on the nausea and the efficacy side. So, and the bioequivalency side. So, uh, you know, I think the trial is going to be a success and I think there's no reason that the agency won't put it through, but you never know with the agency. So, no, of course. And, oh, of course. and it's also worth saying, since we've talked about Fennec a lot, that this is also a pretty easy product to manufacture, we think. Great. Well, Jeb, uh, I think three, you know, it's, it's interesting. I didn't even note this at the time as we sort of discussed what names we'd talk about, but, you know, all three of these names have regulatory angles to them over the next 12 to 18 months. So obviously that's going to be really fun to watch with all these names. Uh, I want to thank you for for coming on and agreeing to to discuss uh, both your new role at Modular, your investment in Modular, your your history and investment in Fennec, and obviously your new investment in Alpha Cognition. I really appreciate the color and the conversation. So thank you so much. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. A few quick concluding comments after my interview with Jeb Besser of Manchester Management. You know, I've known Modular since 2018 when they were out doing a, a round of financing, and I was, you know, I always found the technology appealing. I, I found the the market, the insulin pump market, appealing. Uh, you know, as a capital markets guy, I always like to see these pure play pump peers. You know, insulate in tandem. You know, with their lofty valuations. You know, and obviously having Paul DePerna's uh, pedigree, being the former founder, CEO of Tandem, you know, there when they got their first insulin pump uh, cleared, that adds a ton of credibility to the modular story. Modular right now is is one of those thing, those companies that has to be laser focused. It's all about the 510k process. It's all about uh, you know, navigating that process quickly and efficiently. They went out to try to raise $30 million in a absolutely catastrophically ugly tape. They walked away with 15, which still should see them through the 510K process. I know Jeb very well. He'll be a fantastic steward of the capital. So I think it's all about executing on the 510K process. If they're successful in, the, in you know getting that, uh, getting that process complete with FDA, I think there's tons of value that can get unlocked here. Uh, Fennec, another company I've known for years. I actually knew the predecessor company at Herex. Jeb kind of loosely refers to them when he was talking about, um, you know, a company he saw that had the breast cancer product. And the last slide was STS. Well, that company was at Herex, you know, an old TSX uh, listed company. Um, you know, Fennec to me, I thought I thought Jeb really nailed, you know, the, the one key point here, which is, you know, this company's had two CRLs, both due to CMC manufacturing issues both were attributable to the same manufacturer. 
this isn't a complicated drug to manufacture. I'll have to take you know, his word and management's word for that. I'm not a, as far from my expertise, but we've got a new manufacturer for this NDA. So I think there's a, a good chance of approval here. So we get the NDA submitted in March, six month, uh, six months later, we should have a PADUFA date, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if FDA moved quicker on this, given the fact that this isn't the first time they've seen um, this NDA package. The only thing that should be really new is the CMC package. So I think there's lots of reasons to be very optimistic in a third time's a charm phenomena for Fennec. Finally, turning to Alpha Cognition, this is a story that was, as I said, sort of off the radar for, for the vast majority of people. It was a name that I was introduced to as part of the September-October financing. You know, there's a lot of lofty valuations in the Alzheimer's disease space. There's lots of high science ideas that are attributable to those lofty valuations. This isn't one of those. This is a very you know, modestly valued company taking a more low science approach, 505B2, pro-drug, BE study, you know, the, the clinical bar for success here is not anywhere near as high as it would be for a phase three efficacy study. I'm not saying it's without risk, but, you know, obviously it's a, a bit of a different risk profile, let's just say. I think there's sort of two steps in the in the valuation bump for alpha cognition potentially. Success on the BE study begets a 505B2 NDA submission, which obviously is a is a net positive for the company. But I don't think that onto itself makes this, you know, a uh, necessarily a, a, a you know a huge commercial success. I think they are going to have to run, and, and management, you know, it says this they're going to have to run some additional studies or study to further validate some of the safety benefits that they believe their pro drug of galantamine they call it 1062 you know has versus the uh versus the the uh pr the, the parent drug uh, galantamine so they're going to need to you know provide some evidence that can be either supportive for the label or for their commercial efforts uh in their marketing uh to physicians in order to really demonstrate the the advantages you know whether it be safety they also talk about titration so i mean it's affordable here. There's, I think, uh, you know, some appeal with the BE study outcome, which is imminent. Uh, and then there'll be another sort of set of studies which will further uh, create value for the company, assuming success in that BE study. I just want to thank everyone for their support and interest in the podcast. Um, and these are very difficult and volatile times we, we live in. And obviously there's some macro issues which are far more important than listening to a uh, podcast about a few micro cap uh, healthcare ideas so when people do find the time to tune in and listen we really do appreciate um, you know the interest and support um, i want to thank jeb uh, besser again for his willingness to come on the podcast and to sort of elucidate his his feelings on these um, these these three companies um, and finally you know just on a, on a more uh, holistic sort of uh, level, you know, just everyone be good to each other. Everyone be safe. Let's try and uh, let's try and um, see our way through some of these really challenging times. And hopefully, um, we are uh, in a better place when we uh, can do our next podcast with you. Thanks.